seated. Good to see you. Oh, what a day so far, huh? I know I've been encouraged. Hopefully you've been encouraged as well. Um, so we've been uh, looking at a, um, just a, doing a series on um, God's Word. Uh, what is God's Word? And, and we said in week one that God's Word is living and it's active. It's, it's not like any other historical book or manuscript. It's living and it's active. We said that uh, we looked at a word uh, inspired, and, it's, and it describes that it, that word describes that it was God breathed out. And so, more than just ink on a page, this is breath of God on a page. This gives us what we need to take us from death to life. That's significant, isn't it? It takes us from death to life. That's what this is. This is the breath of God. This is a picture of God standing over Adam and Adam lifeless on the ground after God formed him, fearfully and wonderfully formed him and made him. And it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the word of God. This is what we talked about as the word of God. The word of God, to simplify it, that we, we simplified it last week, at least that was my attempt to simplify it last week, is it's a story. It is one cohesive story about one person, and his name is Jesus. That's what the word of God is. It's a, it's a story in the, in, the, in the unity of the scripture itself. I mean, you got to imagine there's a 1,600-year time frame from, you know, the beginnings and the earliest writings in the word of God to the latest writings in the word of God, a 1,600-year time frame, 66 books, 40-plus authors in three different languages, yet the story, there's no, like no other, the story is unified, pointing to one person, pointing forward in the Old Testament, pointing back in the New Testament of one single event that happened for you and for me, and that was the death on the cross, but the death couldn't hold the man. God summoned up the man out of the grave, and he came out just like he said he would do on day three, and he showed himself to hundreds of people, not just a handful of people, but to hundreds of people before he ascended into heaven and is now currently alive, doing just fine, seated at the right hand of the Father. This is, this is the story about him, and when you and I get to eternity one day, when you and I follow through with this new, this, this day that we're living in, this new creation, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. That's what you are. You are a new creature. The old has passed away, and all things have become new for you. And we live in the day and age called the church, but we're new creations in this thing called the church. But one day, the church is going to just be ushered into, and many from the church have ushered into a place called eternity, where all it's about is not about what you get or what you receive. What it's all about is who he is. That's the story of Jesus. And so I want us now today, I want to give you some information. I want to give you a lot of information 
So pray for me that I can work through this. This is, I, I was practicing with my wife and she was blown away, but she's my wife and she had to be. I don't know if she was pretending or not. No, she wasn't. So I'm gonna give you a lot of, so it might not be as inspiring today. I hope to still be inspiring, um, but I, it's more informative uh, today. And so uh, Emperor uh, Diocletian uh, was a Roman emperor, Roman king around 300 AD. It was the time when the Christians experienced um, as much persecution that they'd ever experienced. Emperor Diocletian, he made it his business to eliminate the church out of Rome. It was just what he, his, his objective in life, it was his purpose in life, was that he was trying to eliminate the church and eliminate their scripture. And so they experienced, Christians experienced, a whole lot of persecution. They were captured, and in order for them to be able to go home, they would have to offer a sacrifice to the Roman gods, or they would have to offer a sacrifice to King Diocletian or Emperor Diocletian himself in order for them to go home. Oftentimes, his, his army would show up to Christians' homes where they knew that they were gathering for church, gathering for worship, reading the scriptures, singing songs, and they would show up to their home, and they were known for this. They were known for saying this, what book, what scripture are you willing to die for today? What scripture are you willing to die for today? And based on what they knew of the word of God, they were willing to die for it. Now, people die for what they believe all the time. So that's not really even one of the points here that I'm trying to make. They died, they died for what I'm going to share with you today. The reason why they were willing to give their lives instead of turn over God's word, which by the way, Diocletian has come and gone, and guess what's standing? The word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God will stand forever. There's been a whole lot of Diocletians that have risen up and said, give me your scriptures, I'm gonna burn them. You want freedom in your life? You come and you burn your scriptures before me if you want freedom in your life. And many refused because of what they knew was true, not because it made their life any more comfortable. We're not Christians, I hope you know that. We're not Christians. Christians because it's an easy life. We're Christians, we're followers of Jesus because it's true. It's true, it's true, and you can't deny it. You say, I know it, it's real, it's true. It's not because of how I feel, it's not an emotion. We follow Jesus because it's true. And here's why they refuse to give up their scriptures. Um, number one, early manuscript evidence early manuscript evidence, comparing, now if we compared other ancient writings, other ancient historians, other characters or figures in history uh, compared to just the New Testament, we never questioned these particular people. For example, Plato, Plato's, Plato's Tetralogies. Plato's Tetralogies was written in 400 BC. Now, nobody questions the existence of Plato. 
Okay? We even coin phrases based on his philosophy like platonic relationship. Have you ever heard that? Where I'm in a platonic relationship. That, that's based on Plato's philosophies on, on, on relationship and in love. Okay? And, and, and so Plato wrote the, this writing written in 400 BC. The earliest copy that we have of that particular writing, the earliest copy that was found was A.D. 900. Okay, written in 400 BC, the earliest copy of that was found in AD 900. The gap between those years were 1,300 years. The number of copies in existence, seven, seven. Let me give you another example. Plato had a student by the name of Aristotle. Anybody hear of Aristotle before? That was Plato's student, Aristotle. Uh, he wrote Ode to Poetics, uh, written in 340 BC. The earliest copy found of that was in AD 1100. The gap between those years, 1400 years between the time that the original writings were, he wrote the original um, manuscript of the Ode to the Poetics and the time that it was, earliest time that it was found, 1400 year gap. The number of copies, 49 copies, 49 copies. Now, there's another uh, student of Aristotle. His name is Alexander the Great. Who's ever heard of Alexander the Great? All of you have heard of Alexander the Great. Never. Remember, we don't question Plato's existence. We don't question Aristotle's existence. They're in our history books. We learn about them in school. We read things about their philosophies and their ideas and all these. We don't question their existence. But as far as the number of copies, you would wonder why. Aristotle had a student by the name of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great um, was told by his mother that he was a descendant of, of Achilles, that he was a demigod, that he was an ascendant of, of Achilles. We know about Achilles based on um, a book that was written, and maybe you've heard of this, Homer's the Iliad. Homer's the Iliad, it was based on that. Now you're like, what is Homer's the Iliad? Well, Homer's the Iliad, if you watch Troy, the movie uh, with Brad Pitt, that's, that's what that movie is based on this book just to, I don't know if it, it helped me <laughs> like what is I mean, maybe you were assigned in college that but this is what, what the movie um the movie is based on this book um hold on one second Gabe before we show that uh, that that's probably the closest rival to the New Testament okay and I'll show you I will put that back up there in a second Alexander the Great student of Aristotle carried around that book with him because of based on what his mother told him about himself, that he was a descendant of Achilles. And so he carried around Homer's the Iliad around with him. Wherever he went to battle, is the, the, you know, legend says that he slept with it under his, his pillow. Alexander the Great, according to a guy, a, a Jewish historian, Josephus. Now, Josephus is an atheist, non-believer in God, who wrote history on the Jewish people. Okay, you following me? Josephus, Jewish historian. Josephus wrote about an encounter or an experience that Alexander the Great had with a priest, the high priest, when he showed up to Jerusalem one day. The high priest's name was Judiah, Judah, Jadua, or something like that, Jadua, that's what it is, Jadua. I'm, I'm trying, a lot of information to remember. All right, bear with me. I'll just say a name and you just go with it, okay? <laughs> Fact check me later. I might be wrong. Jadua was the high priest's name. He meets Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is now this powerhouse, 
mighty king, mighty warrior of the Greeks, okay? He's this powerhouse. Alongside of them, the powerhouse, the, probably the stronger still in this time frame of Alexander the Great was the Persian Empire, Persian Empire. Alexander the Great shows up to Jerusalem. Jadua comes out to greet him, and he says, Alexander the Great, I'm glad that you're here. I'm paraphrasing. I don't even know what he said. Glad you're here. Can you have some coffee? No, I'm sure he didn't say that. I want to show you something. And so Jadua brings Alexander the Great into the temple. And, Ale- and, and Jadua, a high priest, pulls out an ancient manuscript. He pulls out the book of Daniel. Have you ever heard of the book of Daniel before? Do you know Daniel? Story of Daniel and the light? Okay. This is the time when Daniel and, and the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon. Okay. He shows him written 200 years. Now, this is important. This is important. Written 200 years prior to the birth of Alexander the Great. Daniel was written 200 years prior to the birth of Alexander the Great. He brings Alexander the Great into the temple, pulls out a manuscript of Daniel, and shows him in two separate occasions in the book of Daniel. We know it as Daniel chapter number 8 and Daniel chapter number 11. He shows him and says to Alexander the Great, this is you. This is talking about you. Because in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, it talks about this Grecian mighty king who will overthrow the powerhouse in that time, Persia. He will, he will overthrow the Persian army. Alexander the Great. Now, here's another interesting thing. I don't want to forget this. Aristotle. You remember Aristotle? He was the teacher of Alexander the Great. One of the main things, the important things that Aristotle did to Alexander the Great was he taught him the Hebrew language. And so when, I don't know, maybe you're not, I'm just like blown away by this. When Alexander the Great showed up to the temple, when he opened up the book of Daniel, guess what it was written in? Hebrew. Guess what Alexander the Great could read for himself? Hebrew, the book of Daniel, Hebrew, and he reads it. And according to Josephus, a atheist says that Alexander the Great left Jerusalem and believed every word that was written in the manuscript written by Daniel 200 years prior to his own birth. There he is on breath on a page written prior to. Is this not amazing to anybody else? Come on, let's breath on a page 200 years prior to and says, this is you, buddy. I don't know if it shrunk Alexander the Great. It would have shrinked me. Like, whoa, something supernatural is writing about me that I don't even quite understand. I don't know if it shrunk. Probably not. It doesn't appear so that it shrunk Alexander the Great. It probably just puffed up Alexander the Great and said the Hebrew God is writing about me 200 years prior to my birth. And sure enough, Alexander the Great overtook the Persian army. But God said he would 200 years prior to before he was even born. This is a historian, not a Christian, 
not a God-fearing person even, who said this happened to Alexander the Great. Now, we don't question the existence of Alexander the Great. We don't question that. The other, Homer's the Iliad, which is what Alexander the Great carried with him. Let me give you some uh, facts about that. Homer's the Iliad, um, written in 800 B.C., the earliest copy found in 300 B.C., a gap between those years, 500 years, the number of copies, 643. Now let's compare these writings, Plato, Aristotle, Josephus that wrote about Alexander the Great, Homer's the Iliad. Let's compare those known facts. It's, it's considered history. It's, we read about it. It's in our books, right? Right, 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 right? Okay, we, it just, it's just what we consider to be fact. Now, let's compare those numbers to the New Testament. The New Testament, before you throw that up there, Gabe, the New Testament um, they, they, they had most of the four Gospels. They had eight of Paul's letters to some churches. They had all of the book of Revelation. All of it. Most of the four Gospels. Eight of Paul's, eight of 13 of Paul's letters. And all of the book of Revelation by as early as 200 A.D. 200 A.D., the New Testament was written between the time frame of 45 A.D. and as late as 95 A.D. So there's this 50-year period of, of our Old Testament uh, that we have. By 200 A.D., majority of the New Testament was discovered by 200 A.D. Now, this is another thing that we, they found in 1930 in Egypt. Do we have an image of that, Gabe? 1930, this is a little scrap paper, okay? This is known as John Ryland's papyri, okay? Or in other words, P52. You guys probably have heard it as P52, right? Melanie, yeah, that's probably what you know it as. P52 or John Ryland's papyri, okay? They, this, is, um, this is a text, scriptural text of John 18. And there's... Three verses. It's like John 18, 31 to 32, and, and verse 37. This is sort of that, what that is, okay? These are three verses. This, this is dated back. This is still preserved, by the way. It's preserved in some museum in Boston. Or, or, no, 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 excuse me. Manchester, England. It's preserved in, in, in Manchester, England. Um, that's, this is still exists. You can go there and you can see this. This is dated back as early as 125 AD. Many scholars say that it's probably even dated earlier than that, and it could probably go as early as 98 AD. Now, just to compare with all the other writings of, that we consider to be fact, just to, put that, just to compare that, this is the New Testament now that we have, written in between 85 and 45, earliest copy, AD 125, or could be as early as AD 98, gap between the years between 30 and 80 years. That means that there are still people alive who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, blah, 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 okay? There are still people alive to verify 
the veracity of the New Testament. They could verify it. They could say, yes, this is true. This isn't true. Why? Because there was still people alive. The gap between 30 and 80 years. The number of copies, this has already blown you away, hasn't it? 24,000 plus. Why do I believe that the, the scriptures is so amazing and so unique and so different than anything else? Because this one reason, the early manuscript evidence. This, this is one reason. Hopefully I'll get better for you. Number two reason. Number two is mathematical evidence of the supernatural. Okay, mathematical or scientific evidence of the supernatural, meaning that there was internal evidence. There was Old Testament, um, if you're prophecy, okay, maybe that would, that's more of a familiar word for you. Prophecies of who the Christ would be or who the Christ, what the Christ would look like, okay? Now, this is not just, you know, you know, just a coincidence, okay? This is, this is mathematical evidence of a supernatural involvement. Let me give you a couple examples, and then I'll give you some, some statistics, okay? Um, Bethlehem, in Micah 5.2, it tells us that the Christ would be born out of Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, and his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Okay, so this is just describing the Christ, and he was going to come out of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah, and there's other references in scripture that aren't prophetic that talk about, you know, the, the clans of Judah, and it doesn't mention Bethlehem. Why? Because it was too small to mention. But in this particular case, it's mentioned because why? Because the one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. That's why it was so important. And, and, and this is also something that's interesting. There were two Bethlehems in that time. So when it says this word or this phrase, epathra, epathra, I think I'm saying it right. I don't know. It's talking about the specific Bethlehem that Jesus was birthed in. It's talking about this specific one. Too little to be mentioned among the clans of Judah, because normally it is. A specific Bethlehem that's mentioned here. And it says, and not only says this, but it says that he will be go forth from long ago, from the days of eternity, which, which talks about Jesus as eternal. It talks about Jesus that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. This is talking about Jesus and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is unheard of. This is mathematical evidence. Now, some nerd, I don't know how to describe him, somebody a lot smarter than me, put together some probabilities of this. The mathematical probability of coincidence is, is this. If the Christ came out of Bethlehem, a specific Bethlehem, 
and he's from eternity, the mathematical probability of coincidence is this, is one in 100 million. That would be the coincidence of it. That would be the, the happenstance of it. That would be just, if it was just luck. But no, it's not luck. It's not coincidence. It's supernatural involvement. That's one example. Let me give you another example of mathematical evidence of the supernatural. Um, the scripture tells us, the Old Testament scripture tells us that he will come out of the seed of Abraham, that he will come out of the seed of Isaac, and he will come out of the seed of Jacob, he will come out of the seed of Judah, he will come out of the seed of Jesse, and he will come out of the seed of David. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David. The Christ, this is, this is clear and evident to any Jewish historian that the Christ had to, must come out of the seed of David. But it doesn't just mention the seed of David, it mentions the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. It mentions Jesse, it mentions also David. And so you have these five people in scripture that Jesus fulfilled all of them. He, it was foretold that he would come out of their lineage, out of their ancestry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesse, David. It was foretold, and he fulfilled all five of those. He fulfilled all of them. You say, what is the mathematical? I know that's what you're asking yourself right now. What is the mathematical probability of that coincidentally happening, that he would come out of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, what is that? That is a one in 1.4 trillion chance. And he, Jesus, who the story is all about, fulfilled them all. All of them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David. Everyone, one in 1.4 trillion chance of that happening. Let me give you another one. Just because I'm having fun, I don't know how you feel right now, but I'm having a good time. Um, there's a verse, there's a prophecy in Genesis 49.10. In Genesis 49.10, it says this. It says, the scepter shall, shall not depart from Judah. That's the, so that's the foretelling of the seed or the Savior, the Christ, Jesus, will not depart from Judah. So this is the foretelling of the prophecy of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a Hebrew baby name, the baby, baby Hebrew name. Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this, you, you and I read this and we're like, what is the scepter? What does that mean? Well, Jewish people understood this was significant to them, okay? So sometimes things like this don't, we don't make, it doesn't make sense to us, but to them, it made complete sense. And the scepter is that, that, they, that they will maintain their judicial laws, that the Jews will maintain their judicial laws until he comes. That they will still be able to, you know, run and regulate spiritually, religiously until he comes. 
Now, this is significant for lots of reasons. Number one, number one reason is because of the fact that, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the Persian army, you think about, their, first of all, you think about Babylonian and their captivity. While they were captive in Babylonia, they still were able to maintain their judicial laws, their religious laws. When they were released and then under the oppression of the Persians. Remember the story of Esther? Okay, Esther was this Jewish girl who saved her people. You read your Bible, it's an amazing story. This is, this is God supernaturally orchestrating this Jewish girl to save her people. All the while, they were able to keep their judicial religious laws. After the Persians came along, who? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the Greeks. The Greeks were in charge. You know what happened when Alexander the Great showed up to Jerusalem and Jadua invited him into the temple? Alexander the Great normally pillaged the whole city. Alexander the Great normally went into a town and renamed it. But you know what he did to Jerusalem and you know what he did to the Jewish people? Not a thing. He normally makes them change their laws. He didn't do that. Why? Because Jadua said, hey, you're in Daniel. Hey, you're in Daniel. And, J and Alexander the Great's like, all right, well, that's cool. That's pretty neat. That's neat information, so I'll leave you alone. He didn't touch them. But then another powerhouse came to be. It was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire came in. And Herod's son, Archelaus came in and he brought the Jewish people under his rule and under his oppression. And that happened in AD 11. AD 11, that happened. He changed everything. AD 11. Jesus was born somewhere around AD or excuse me, 2 BC to 4 BC, somewhere around that time frame. 2 BC to 4 BC. Jesus was born. The scepter was passed. Are you following me? Are you following any of this? The scepter was passed in A.D. 11 under Emperor Archelaus in A.D. 11. Jesus died in 32 A.D. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. Number one, because in Genesis 49.10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And so when Jesus was born, then the scepter was passed. Let me tell you another reason why that's significant. Because according to Jewish law, a blasphemer was stoned to death. If anyone committed blasphemy, if anybody made the claims that Jesus did as being God in flesh, you know what happened? They would have stoned him. They would have hurled rocks at his head. But when the scepter was passed, death by stoning was eliminated from Jewish law, and that's why the Romans took Jesus into their own hands and they crucified him. 
You say, why did that have to happen? Because hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it said that he would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Isaiah said that he would be pierced for our iniquities. Zechariah said that he would be pierced for our sins. What does that tell us? That tells us that God said he would be crucified and not stoned to death. Is this incredible or not? This deserves a round of applause for God Almighty in history orchestrating every single step along the way. The word of God is not as fragile as the pages that we read it on. The word of God is built around a structure so strong that no matter how powerful anybody is, they will lose. This is not your faith in the thing that you're holding in your hand, whether it be on paper or digitally on your phone, however you read it. Let me tell you something. It is not a house, a house of cards. It's not a house of cards. And I'm having a good time. It's raining out. You don't even want to go out there anyways. <laughs> now, let me tell you, if, now I gave you a bunch of odds, right? I gave you a bunch of odds. Now, let me give you some more. Um, where am I? My notes. What if just eight, now there's 400. Did I say that? 400 prophecies. Foretold and fulfilled. 400. Foretold, fulfilled. What if there was just eight what if there was only eight prophecies foretold and fulfilled, not 400? The probability, the mathematical probability, if there was only eight, there in other words, 400. If it was only eight, are you hearing me? Eight. Here's the mathematical probability of that coincidence. One in 10 to the 17th power. And that's what that number looks like. If there was just Eight prophecies. Now, what if it was just, what if it was just one in 10? Like not one in, you know, 100 million or one in 1.4 trillion or one in 10 to the 17th power. What if the odds were just one in 10? It would be like this. Are you ready for this? It'd be like this. If it was just one in 10, it would be like, Winning the state lottery five times in a row with only one single ticket. Winning the state lottery five times in a row with only one single ticket. It would be like guessing between a number or a second, between one second and 15 billion years. You would have to guess that number. Not once, not twice, but three times. That's the mathematical probability that there is a supernatural 
involvement in what you hold and what you have in your possession. It would be like, you're like, you got more? Yeah, I got more. (laughs) It would be like the state of Texas buried in silver dollars. The whole state of Texas buried in silver dollars one foot deep. And you were taken to the state of Texas blindfolded and you would have to find the one silver dollar that said Market Street Church on it. (laughs) There is more than just coincidence here, don't you think? There's a supernatural involvement has taken place so that you can have breath of God in your possession. I'm running out of time, I, and I got to get to the best one. I haven't even shared the best one. Have I shared that with you? I haven't even given you the best one. There's a third one. I'm just going to go th- skim through this one. You just have to Google search these. Archaeological evidence of Scripture. There's archaeological evidence, meaning that every single archaeologist that have dug around to refute the text have never been able to. It is only... This is, this is fact. It is only confirmed scripture. And it's still happening. Uh, uh, Sir Ramsey, Sir Edward Ramsey, I think his name is. He was determined, he was determined to prove that the book of Acts was a fallacy. He was determined to prove that Luke was a heretic and a liar. And he went to Asia Minor, where a majority of the book of Acts was written about, places where Paul spent his journeys on. He went to 32 countries. He went to nine islands. I mean, he traveled around just to, re- just to try to refute the scriptures. And you know what he discovered? He discovered that Luke was a top-notch historian because every time that he dug around, he realized, yep, that's there. Yep, that's there. Yep, Luke was right. And you know what happened to him? He put his faith in Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus after digging around going, well, this is true, I guess. <laughs> and he went out to disprove it. But he poked around enough to say, Jesus is, he's a real, and he's alive, and he's doing well. Do you believe that? Oh, the Hittites? Oh, the Hittites. Do you know for hundreds of centuries, centuries upon centuries, the Hittites, they had no, you know, the Hittites, the Ites in the Bible, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Zebuzites, the Hittites, they, they didn't have any information about the Hittites. So they're going, so there's archaeologists and historians are going, oh, that, you know, this is false and the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. It mentions this whole people and we have zero evidence of this. An archaeologist went to Turkey and he started digging around for another reason altogether. And he dug up a library. 
And he dug up this library, and there was tens of thousands of artifacts and manuscripts. And you know what they all were about? The Hittites. He discovered that in 1906. You can look that up too. He, they, uh, for, for years and years and years and years, centuries, they were saying, no Hittites, no Hittites. And the guy's like, I found the Hittites. Here they are. Listen, every single person is digging around going, I found him. Digging around going, that's true. Digging around going, I verify that. They're, they continue to do that. Continue to do that. In 1961, they found an inscription of Caiaphas. And you know what the New York Times said? Huh. <laughs> Essentially, huh. Maybe there's something is, there's something to this Bible. They found inscriptions of Pontius Pilate. In 2002, I don't, they're still working through the legalities of this and the veracity of this, but they found a, a, a ossuary box inside the ossuary box, or on the inscription of the ossuary box, or, or bones, and it, on the outside of it, it says, it says uh, uh, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. I mean, they're still working through that, and, but listen, you, nev never do they have the brother of, unless they were a prominent, well-known person. People keep digging around. Do you know what they find? The Bible is verifiable. So if you want to invest in that, that's a worthy cause to invest in. Pay archaeologists to go out and dig around. That's a worthy investment to do that. If you want to start doing that, pick up a shovel and start digging around to around that time. You know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover how durable the word of God is. It's not a house of cards. But you know what I love best about the uniqueness of the Bible? This is my favorite one. You know what I love is this. The one-of-a-kind message of salvation. Every other religious manuscript, you know what their message is? Here you go. Here's our book. You figure out how to read it, and you figure out how to get to God. Here's your plan, here's your steps, here's the process of how to get to a higher place, how to get to a better place, how to get to heaven, how to get to God. That's everyone else's message. That's every other faith, that's every other religion, that's every other philosophy. Here's how you can be better. Here's how you can get there. Here's how you can get to a higher state. Here's how you can be in heaven, a better place. This is the message of every other faith, but not ours. Ours is different. You know what ours is? It's not man's attempt to get to God. You know what our message is? Hey, here's your message. God came down to you. That's where God came down 
to you. God left his place in heaven and he came down to this earth and the word put on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. He was God incarnate. The image of the invisible God came to this earth to offer salvation and to give the message of hope to a world that needs it. We have a one of a kind message. This is unique in a way that you and I have never experienced or seen in any literature or any manuscript or anything that we view as true. This stands alone. The word of God stands alone and the message is better than any other message that any other faith has to offer. I'm not here knocking any other faith. I'm just here to tell you that I love following Jesus because of the message that he came running to me. The story that Jesus told of the prodigal son is not found in any other religious or faith-based literature of a God who is running towards you. But that's our story. That's our message. It's better than any other message. And the word of God is not just a, hey, here's a manual for life. It's more than that. Hey, here's a plan on how to get to a better place one day. It's better than that. You know what it is? It's the story of Jesus and how to know him more. It's not about a place that you go to. It's about a person that you're going to be with. It's about knowing him better and knowing him more intimately, knowing him in a greater level. It's knowing that he will never leave you, nor he will, nor he will, he will forsake you. He will stick closer to you than a brother. He is always with you. He is always going before you. And he's saying, here you go. Here's all of about me. Follow me and I'll take you. Why? Because he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father unless it's through me. He says, so hey, come along. You want to know me better? Here you go. Start reading this. Start asking God to reveal some things about me in it. And guess what? He will in a powerful way. Why? Because it's not just a historical book. It's living and it's active. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's breath for you, and it's breath for me. It's life. Read it. Know him. Because it's about knowing him personally and not knowing where you're going. It's not about a place. It's about who's there. That's what it's about. I've gone way late. Rain stops, so I'll let you go home. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. It is, it is a mountain 
mountains of evidence. And there are so many out there that think that you can just knock it over like it's a house of cards. Flick one little thing about something random in it. And forgive us when it makes us sort of fold like a tent when they do that. Forgive us when we start to question the durability of it, the power of it, and what it can do for us. God, we thank you for the mathematical evidence of that there was a a supernatural involvement. That those that have dug around have only discovered that it's just simply true. And that your ancient manuscripts have been preserved dating all the way back to AD 125. Just a few years from when they were originally written. And that stands alone. That stands alone compared to all other literature that we casually deem as history. And Lord, more importantly than all of those, the message of it, the grace that you extend to those of us that need it. That it's not our efforts or our abilities to try to figure out how do we get to you because you've already proven that we will fall short of your glory. But that you sent your son because you loved the world. And all we have to do is put our faith in him. And we will have eternal life. God, thank you for that message. I pray, Lord, that you encourage everyone here. Give them a great rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.